good morning again, everybody. Um, as my usual, I hope that you had a good week. It sounds like it's been a, a pretty heavy week for a lot of us. Um, and then you add in the snowstorm in the middle of the week, and here we are this morning. But I am glad to see you all this morning. Um, we are coming to the end of our series on rest. Um, obviously, we can spend a lot more time on this subject. It's something that we can go into a lot more depth. Um, and I hope that the applications and the things that we are picking up from the Word can be lived out uh, in our lives for months to come. But as we begin this morning, I wanted to start with something perhaps a little bit braggadocious. So I wanted you to just kind of bear with me for a little bit because I think that you'll understand the point afterwards. Um, and you know, after this week, I gotta say, I'm looking forward to some sandy beaches. Some warmer weather, sunshine, even though they're calling for a lot of rain. Uh, fresh pineapple, just time away. The beautiful scenery. You know, I look forward to this next week. I have a lot of expectations for Hawaii and it's gonna be amazing. And I can just take some time and sit and reflect in that and dwell on what it's going to be like. And I can find rest. But it's a trip that's been planned for many months. And getting to this point has taken time. And as it's here, as it's getting closer and closer, you experience all that you've had to get to to get to this point. Now, Hawaii was actually a desire and goal for our honeymoon but two broke college students weren't really living in reality at that time. So we made it a goal for our 20th. You know, and years had passed. We've picked up a few more travelers and, and lost one. Um, but I can say that the expectations have been there for a long time. There's been hills and valleys along the way. And now that it's finally here, this, the range of emotions is odd. Because you can experience all of the joy and the excitement and appreciate the comments of, you know, we're so happy for you. Are you sure you don't need a nanny with you? Or I can fit in a suitcase pretty well, you know. To the times of bittersweetness that is mixed in with that. You know, I'm sure that when we finally get there, it will be amazing. It will be surreal. It will be beautiful. You know, have there been events in your life that you have built up with expectation? Events that you've had to wait for? Things that you are pursuing in your life in order to meet that goal? That through the middle of that, those pursuits and those plans, perhaps you've experienced some ups and downs along the way. When it comes to an analogy looking at that, I think of one of my favorite movies that I love to cry to anymore, the movie Up. You think of what happens in that movie in terms of them setting a goal to reach the destination of a waterfall in South America. And they have the jar that's set out and they're saving money, but life happens. Things break, unexpected things happen. And he does eventually get there in an unusual way. Probably not in the way that he was hoping for, but he gets there. In the same way, we wait and we persevere for those opportunities in our life. I think of them as a precursor for how we wait 
for rest. And rest in this meaning is our eternal rest, our final resting place with the Father. And as we get older, I think that we definitely have the sense of it coming sooner. Maybe not this week, maybe you're hoping for this week, but there's the same type of expectation and hope, and perhaps some bittersweetness that surrounds our entering rest. And it's something that I want to dive into you and explore in scriptures today. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Hebrews chapter 3. And if you don't have Bibles, there's some hopefully underneath the chairs, there's some in the offices. Um, If you need some, be sure to get yourself a Bible. Um, Because we're going to be in quite a few different areas of scripture for some longer passages today. Today I want to read Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, and through chapter 4, verse 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who had heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering uh, entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as it is said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Father, as we look at your word today, pray that you would open up our hearts and minds. Lord, that you would give us wisdom and understanding in some of these hard topics. In your name I pray, amen. So a longer portion of scripture that we're kind of covering today, and I want to pull out a few points for us to consider um, as we talk about this series of rest, as we are talking about heaven. You know, the author here is giving examples of the Israelites and the promises that were given to them in order to instill hope for the early church, um, to have hope in the promises of the final rest that happens through Jesus. And the first thing I want to point out for us is the awesome inerrancy of the divine scriptures. Um, you know, this allows us to put our faith in the promises of God. And as you look at chapter 3, verse 7, um, the author is attributed to being the Holy Spirit for that portion of Psalms that's recorded here. It shows how the Spirit is moving through David in Psalm 95. Also notice how it is a present tense. The Holy Spirit says. So we can see here that he is even speaking now. Very simply, it connects to later in chapter 4, verse 12, where it says that the, the word of God is living and active, present tense. Now, this is what David says in Psalm 95. If you want to turn there, you can, but just put a marker here because we'll be back in Hebrews quickly. But in Psalm 95, he says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as at the day at Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now Psalm 95 is recounting events that happened during the Exodus journey with the bitter waters at Meribah and Massa where Moses is told by God to purify those waters. It's another sign for the people. Then you have another account uh, in Numbers 14, where David is referring to this as well. Uh, in Psalm 95, in Numbers 14, verse 20, says, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. So we see these judgments that are coming down on the people during the Exodus journey. And I believe it's good for us to see the consistency in Scripture. It's good for us to see how scripture is tied together. You know, Joshua, as he is about to lead the people into the promised land, in chapter 1, verse 13 of his book, um, 
He says, remember the word that Moses, the servant of your Lord, commanded you, saying the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. You see, the promised land was a fulfilled promise of God. It's his gift, it's his possession. He is the one that is in control. And what we see here in Hebrews through this description is that God's word is true, that his promises in the word are secure in him according to his word not according to our grumbling and complaining. So we should take great hope in what the word says in terms of God's promises so that we can persevere in our faith. Because the second thing that I want us to see within this passage are all of the warnings that are given. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We see this three different times in our passage in Hebrews. Then looking at chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Or if you turn the page to chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and upholding him to contempt. As we look at these passages from the Exodus journey, we see how the rest in the promised land was denied to that generation of the Israelites in the wilderness because of disobedience, because of rebellion. See, we see this reasoning also explained in our passage in chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. For those who had heard yet rebelled. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was 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 he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. It was due to their unbelief, where they had rejected God. They were hardened in their unbelief because of deceitfulness of sin. And this is consistent throughout the Bible. You know, when we look at our own lives, there are seasons where we can be overcome by the strongholds of the enemy, where our hearts can be hard, where our foreheads can be like brass, and we can be stubborn. That rebellion, that unbelief, kept that generation from entering the promised land, the land of rest that was promised by God. And my question is, should we be afforded a different result? Because we're in this generation. I mean, does the grace of God change? Is he an angry and wrathful God in the Old Testament and a loving, merciful God in the New Testament? Or is he consistent? Is he constant? Is he unchanging? So what do we do with these warnings? You know, from our passage... We can see the reality that even as brothers, as believers, they can harden their hearts. 
Because of that, believers are called to exhort each other every day, to encourage, to equip, to build each other up in the truth, to hold firm to their faith. Now within these warnings, we also see how the Hebrews book here is full of this type of language. Um, the warnings are, are there along with the, the encouragement to hold fast to the confession of their faith, to hold fast to the confession of hope that they have in Christ. And the focus of the warnings is more on perseverance in their faith rather than focusing on salvation. I think that's an important distinction that we need to understand because we can easily slip into different errors that way. The emphasis is on the confidence and hope that the believers have in their high priest, Jesus. Because it's, it's because of him that we have full assurance to enter into the holy places. Chapter 10, verse 20 through 30, or 23, says, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies, washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now again, Hebrews is a difficult book because of the language that is used, and topics can get heavy, and there's full of mystery, and some of these things are difficult to articulate. It's not a very restful subject for me um, who likes something that's clean cut and to have to be able to come up here and then articulate it. So again, with this whole series on rest, it's rest through chaos at times. But you know, people debate and argue over a lot of things, themes and topics within the book of Hebrews. And the big debate is over the doctrine of assurance of salvation and the question of can a person lose their salvation. People known as apostates who are described in this section that we read are those who fall away from the faith. Now I will say this often, probably you don't like hearing it, but I am glad I'm not the judge in a lot of these circumstances, which might not give you that much hope because you want a clear-cut answer. But I can only afford what the scriptures share. And I think that if I had a perfect understanding and all of the answers, then I wouldn't have a lot of use for faith. To understand and to step into those mysteries and trust God for who he is. Because I've wrestled back and forth with these subjects. I've gone through different passages um, in the doctrines and have struggled through a lot of those things. And what I find in scripture are that there are warnings all over the Bible. So again, how do we treat them? Are they just rhetorical? Are they just figurative? Do they have big ramifications that we need to pay attention to? You know, one of the, the, with these doctrines and warnings, one of the reasons that I find for these warnings is so that the church would not make themselves be complacent or lukewarm or have an easy believism type of faith where here's your ticket to heaven, now you can go live however you want. Because as we read it in the call to worship in Romans 6, that was an attitude that was present within the early church. That's an attitude that we find in the church today. Where people get their ticket to heaven and then they're gone. And they don't understand Jesus as their Lord. 
and what that means. These warnings, however, are also not to cause us a worry of being sure that you're receiving salvation again today because of that one sin that you committed yesterday. These warnings are not necessarily need to be treated as having the right doctrine and then playing word games or finding loopholes within the scriptures to avoid certain ones so that my theology still stands. Again, it's difficult to wade through these waters. And we want to understand that these warnings are more about perseverance than our salvation. But I would say that what we see in this passage is an outright warning to everyone in the church. Not just those people over there who are sitting in ways that I don't like. It's a warning for me. It's a warning for you. My greatest fear as a pastor, as a Christian, is Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I read what those people do. Yes, it's more of a works-based type of confession, but I see what they do in Jesus' name. I look at what I'm doing in Jesus' name. Man, if they don't stand a chance, who can be saved? But for the grace of God. That's where we need to fall back to. If we make other things the centrality of our faith, whether it's the issues that we hold up, whether it's these theologies that we espound, if we make other things other than Jesus the centrality of our faith, then we're in error. If we make it about us, rather than holding on to the promises of God, we're missing the mark. And in this section, between in chapter 3, verses 12 through 19, it's bookmarked with the term unbelief. These warnings are dealing about unbelief. So when it comes to entering into the rest of God, we have to understand that it's only through the blood of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you believed and once saved, always saved. It doesn't matter if you are a three, four, five-point Calvinist. It doesn't matter if you are an Arminianist. These are just systems of beliefs, ways to interpret scripture. Denominations have rallied around these theologies and propped them up to say who's in and who's not. They want to be in control of salvation. But who is in control? Who owns the promised land? Who is the creator? There can only be one. The only thing that matters when you come face to face with your creator is whether or not you believe that the blood of Jesus will pay for your sins, that he has traded his perfect life for yours, that by his death and through his resurrection, you are saved. Because it's either Jesus' blood that is paid on your behalf and you receive eternal rest, or it is your own blood to pay for your sins and you receive eternal torment Now, through these warnings, there's a few things that I'm not saying. I'm not saying that theology and doctrine are not important, because they are. But rather, we want to be careful when these systems are propping up to be centrality or the central part of our faith. I'm also saying, or I'm also not saying, that if you have doubts in your faith, that you can lose your salvation or grasp or lose your grasp on assurance. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Disbelief is the opposite of faith. 
All Christians will struggle with doubt. What does the man whose son was healed after Jesus comes down from transfiguration say? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jude 22 says, And have mercy on those who doubt. So again, perseverance in our faith is the point that the author is trying to get across. And this warning to avoid apostasy, this falling away from God, is a constant care that we need to take for ourselves and for each other. It's a perseverance in faith to where if we find brothers and sisters who are walking in sin, we have a duty to call them back to the truth. Now most of my messages are geared towards adults. And at times, um, I have probably taken the stance of, you're adults, you should know better. And I've just let things be. And I apologize. Because I'm not as stern as I could be or should be in some areas. Because I don't want to be judgmental. You know, we always play that, the game using scripture, right? You got to get the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's eye. Well, since I don't want to touch the log in my eye, you're good. Or we think that's between them and God. Who am I to interfere? But the Lord was working on me this week. Because when I read the seriousness of these warnings, and others like it in Scripture, and the result of living in sin as falling away from God, as a hardening of heart, I I deeply beg for forgiveness. Because in reality, what I'm saying is, I don't love you enough to call out sin in your life. I don't love you enough to reproach a lifestyle that is entertaining sinful behavior because I don't want to cause waves, because I don't like conflict. That's foolish of me. Well, yes, it's the Spirit's job to convict, not mine. The Spirit can still use me to speak the truth, to address sin in your life, because he has put me in a position as a shepherd. Not that I'm going to be some authoritarian or dictator or hyper-legalist, but I know in my own life how when we are trapped by sin, we don't want to listen to reason. But at times we need a hand to help us get out of the pit, to lead us back to the truth. As I reflected on what we talked about last week and the compassion that Jesus had for those people who are sheep without a shepherd, I thought about the compassion that I have for you all. How at times we can entertain flippant attitudes, endearing relationships towards sin in our life. Because, well, Jesus paid for it all, right? So it's okay. That attitude is so far away from what God wants in the scriptures. And if you're treating sin so lightly in your life, can I warn you that you are in danger of hearing away from me, I never knew you. You won't fool God. He knows belief from disbelief. His word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, 
and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Everything is exposed in front of him. You might be able to fool me, others, and yourself, but God knows your ulterior motives. God knows your heart. I'm also not saying within these warnings that we need to be perfect or that salvation is works-based. But I'm saying that when sin is confronted in our life or where we're living a life that's consistently steeped in sin, then we are away from God and not walking in his ways. And we need to repent and seek forgiveness so as to not get a hard heart of of unbelief. Repenting is turning away from what we're doing that is away from God and turning back to his ways. So examine yourself right now. How are you living in sin? How are you letting things just skate by thinking no damage is being done? Thinking living this way is really for the best for my situation. Even though I know it's a sin, it's it's what works for me. I mean, are we fostering hearts that would rather entertain sin than seek forgiveness. Because when it comes to holiness, I think that we all have a long way to go. We've been winking at sin for far too long, not realizing how damaging it is to our hearts and souls, to our body. Now within this message, I also am not saying that you cannot have an assurance of salvation. But if our confidence is in the belief of our assurance, then it's misplaced. Our confidence can only be found in Jesus. And we just need to be aware of the subtle articulation. Again, it's difficult to articulate. But so many times our hope can be placed in other religious type things, like our faith. Our faith is not what saves us. We don't have faith in the hope of our confession. It's not in us. You know, when we look to the word of God, we look to the person of Jesus, they are the root of our faith. They are the firm foundation. We can only look to Christ. So for this second point, we want to take seriously the warnings within this passage. And we want to address the hardness in our hearts and minds the sin that is so easily entangling to us. I think it would be a good study to go through the New Testament, trying to write down all of the warnings that we find that are given to the church, to believers, to the saints. I mean, if there wasn't any type of danger, if it was just rhetorical, why would the warnings be in Scripture? You think of, you think of the churches in Revelation, the seven different churches, and the warnings that were given to them. It could be summed up as it says today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The third point from this passage that I want to draw out for us today is the promise of entering his rest still stands. Chapter four, verse one. And as you look at that verse, you can realize this is being written to people that have heard or have a belief that Jesus has already come back and that they somehow have missed it. 
But the author is encouraging the people to strive to enter that rest. And he compares the rest that the Israelites received in the promised land and showed how that wasn't a permanent rest because God would not still speak of a day of rest yet to come. Chapter four, verse eight. And he's telling the audience that there is going to be a Sabbath rest awaiting those who believe. And this rest also is a gift from God. This is the rest that is the final rest that we long for, that we wait for, that we expect as believers. One that we plan for, one that we strive for. The ones that we're living our lives to receive through perseverance. One that may be bittersweet, knowing what we're leaving behind. But I'm sure will be exciting, amazing, and surreal once we get there. You know, when we think of heaven, when we think of God's rest, there's not a lot of words and thoughts that can fully describe all that there is to it. I can only rely on how John describes it. So if you could, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Again, read a larger portion of scripture because I think we need to hear more of God's word rather than my word. In 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the, tw at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, 
its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And he also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurements, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall and of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the seventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will walk will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. For the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what soon must take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy or the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say come, 
and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of, pro- of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. We look forward to that day with anticipation, with expectation, perhaps longing to go now, but there's still work to be done where the Lord can still use us to exhort, to encourage others, to witness, to evangelize, to serve and to love one another, to spread truth of his word and to care for the least of these, advancing the kingdom by glorifying, magnifying and worshiping the name of Jesus. Today as you have been given today, know that the rest will await you as you trust in the hope that you have in him. And if you're not trusting in him, then you're trusting in something else and that is idolatry. That would be unbelief. That would be hardening of your hearts to the ways of God. We have a blessed hope in the Lord. We have a blessed hope in the person of Jesus. So let all who call upon his name rejoice, for it is today. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this series on rest, and we think about heaven, and we think about your word, I pray deeply that you would expose to us those ways that we are entertaining sin. And Lord, that as we are faced with that conviction by the Spirit, that we would repent. That we would seek your forgiveness. Lord, we praise you all the time for salvation, for the grace that we've received. Lord, I pray today that we can praise you for being our Lord. That you have given us commands, that you have given us warnings in our lives. Because when we're entertaining sin, Lord, it is impossible to know your rest well. So Lord, if we want to be a people of rest, we need to be righteously living for you. Understanding, yes, that we will still falter, that we will still sin, but we don't sit in that sin. Lord, we come to you to seek forgiveness. What a joy it is to be a child of God. And I pray that we do not take that for granted. Lord, we are all battling our own hardships, our struggles, our times of grief and pain. Lord, I pray that as we look outward, as we look towards the things of this earth, 
that we're only doing that after we're looking inward to making sure that we are right with you. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide us through your spirit. That as you convict us, that we would have those around us that can speak truth into our life, that can help pull us out of these pits and draw us closer to you. Because we're not meant to do it alone. So as brothers and sisters, allow us to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to admonish one another. So I pray that you would continue to grow our relationships so that we can speak into each other's lives in ways that would be heard. I pray that as we come here, we're not coming just to hear a good message, Lord, but that we hear your truth. And that we wouldn't just gloss over it, but that it would be impactful to us, that we would apply it to our lives, that we would follow you, denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, and serving you with our whole heart. Lord, I, pr I praise you for the truth of your word. May I have the strength to live by it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.